So I will be uh, inviting up in just a moment our brother, Pastor Andrew Craig. He is the Associate Pastor of Christian Education at Eastridge Baptist Church down in Kent. Uh, they are a dear church to us, friends of ours. Pastor Andrew, uh, Andrew has a wife and three children, and they are unfortunately not with us today. We just have Pastor Andrew, but he is going to come and minister to us the word. So let's give Andy a warm welcome as he comes to bring us God's word. Well, good morning. morning. It's always a joy to be with you. And yes, unfortunately, my 11-month-old is sick, and so we thought we wouldn't (laughs) cross-pollinate diseases with you and spare you guys that. But my family's doing well, and uh, my six-year-old was especially disappointed he wasn't get to join you this morning. Um, And I just have to say, as a very, very proud father, he just learned to ride his bike. So I couldn't be prouder. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be in Colossians 2, 1 through this morning. The book of Colossians is, of course, a phenomenal epistle and is pretty much from start to finish all about encouraging us to find our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. You could think of it like a meal that's offered to us, a meal of, of Christ who is everything that we need. And if you consider the, the, the fact of starvation, have you ever read or learned about what happens to people when they go through or experience a, a time of hungering? Uh, you, you realize it's an extreme situation where people are willing to eat just about anything. There's a fascinating story that's written by Hampton Sides called In the Kingdom of Ice, and it tells the true story of an Arctic expedition towards the end of the 19th century. At the end of that period of time, there was a great push to reach the North Pole. There were a lot of theories about what was at the North Pole. No one had reached it yet. There was the idea that it was actually another world, perhaps a tropical paradise full of flora and fauna that was unique throughout the Earth. They had these grand expectations of what actually existed there. Little did they know that it was a sheet of ice. Well, in 1879 to 1881, there was a U.S. Navy expedition that went aboard the USS Jeannette. This was Navy sanctioned and sponsored by a newspaper tycoon in New York City. They had the ambition to go up through the Bering Strait and try to reach the North Pole through there. After a short trip, they finally came to the ice and they eventually became lodged in the ice flows. And for nearly two years, the ship was locked in the ice with no contact with the outside world. No radios, no telephone, no email, no letters, no mail service, nothing. Just the men on the ship and their rations. At the end of these two years, the ship was crushed by the ice flows and the men had to offboard and make their way across the sheet of ice of the Arctic. They traveled in June to September of 1881 across the icy terrain, carrying their rations. It was, as you can imagine, a terrible ordeal. They had to carry boats with them, hoping to reach the northern Siberian coast so that they could cross the water to reach there once the ice ran out. And so they carried their rations and their boats, sometimes having to double and triple back to carry all their supplies with them. This all happened in sub-freezing temperatures. By October, 14 men reached the northern Siberian coast. 
Their supply is pretty much depleted, their energy pretty much wasted, on the point and verge of starvation, having traveled hundreds of miles with limited rations in the bitter cold. Needless to say, they were weak and near starvation. One was near death, and no help was anywhere. At this point, they decided to send the two strongest men to go on while the rest stayed back and just tried to survive. And these two men, William Nindemann and Louis Noros, the strongest of this exploration party, pressed on through the Arctic chill of northern Siberia. They were in extreme straits. They had experienced hunger and starvation. They became violently ill, and yet they pressed on at nearly 13 miles a day through the chilling winds. They slept in snow caves of their own making. If they were fortunate enough, they could find a grouse that they could roast fur and all and eat. Eventually, they were so starving that they took their sealskin clothes, took strips off of them, boiled it in water, and gnawed on it for as much sustenance as they could get. After 10 days of this travel, they reached a shelter, unoccupied, uninhabited, with no one nearby. And as they went into this shelter, they found this powdery substance. It was ground-up fish, and it had a layer of mold over it. And those who used this hut in the summer for hunting would use that ground-up fish not for food, but to light their lamps. But these two men, Nindemon and Noro, so starved in their bodies so weak, they took fistful after fistful of this moldy, putrid, spoiled fish and ate it. And it ended up causing a worse kind of disease. They were violently ill, but as the author puts it, they kept eating the fish, thinking the sensation of food in their bellies worth the agony. I won't finish the story for you, but I find this to be a fascinating parallel because when faced with the worst kind of extreme hunger, people will eat just about anything, even putrid, spoiled fish, to satisfy their hunger and their longings. And this seems such an appropriate parallel to the world that we live in, where there are people who are starving, yes, physically, but much more important, spiritually who have these pangs of hunger and will go after just about anything to satisfy their spiritual longings. And it will be poison to them, but they will keep eating fistful after fistful of poison to satisfy their soul. And in the end, it will only bring death. Because when you are starving, you will eat anything, even if it furthers your demise. Now, there's a very simple solution to starvation, and that's real food. Had those two men come across a banquet table, they would not have eaten the spoiled fish. And I would suggest to you that Colossians is a book that offers to us real food, real sustenance, in a world full of poison and putrefied fish. And it offered to us is Jesus Christ. And as you come and you find the full satisfaction of Jesus Christ, the delusions and the arguments and the philosophies in this world lose their appeal because you found everything that you need and could ever want in Jesus Christ. And so we come to Colossians 2, 
verses 1 through 4. And Paul writes this as he says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's writing this so that we would be so stocked up on Jesus Christ that when the best deceiver comes into our midst, he would have nothing to offer to us because we have Jesus Christ and that's all we need. So let's see what Paul says here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So it's clear why Paul is writing this. Well, what's he saying? He gives us, we could outline it in kind of three main points of three benefits. Three benefits of being in Christ and a part of Christ's church that come to us that will keep us from plausible arguments. The first benefit that Paul mentions is the benefit of encouragement. The benefit of encouragement. He, he begins by explaining that he wants the Colossians to know how great a struggle he has. We just look back up in chapter 1, verse 28. He gives kind of his philosophy of ministry. He says, Him we proclaim, that's Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, Paul wants the people at Colossae to know that he's struggling, that he has a great toil. And it's not so much that they would know, oh, Paul is such a hard worker, um, that Paul is burdened with the church. That's not why. Paul wants them to know for the purpose of their hearts being encouraged. Paul wants them to be encouraged by his struggles and knowing that he struggles for them. Now, the Colossians were part of a city called Colossae, and they were in a small village that really wasn't well known for the Roman Empire. It was kind of a know-nothing, out-of-the-way place. This church had been founded apart from Paul. Paul was not the one who founded it. Somebody else had planted the church, but Paul was aware of them, and he knew of their faith, and he thanks God for their faith in chapter 1. And he goes on to explain in the rest of chapter 1 a high and lofty Christology. He teaches them of who Jesus Christ is, that he is fully God, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that he is the image of the invisible God. And he's telling them this and explaining to them that he has a great struggle for them even though he hasn't met them face to face. And the struggle that he has for them is not a struggle that he has with them and present with them, but apart from them. And the kind of struggle he has for them is a struggle so that they would be built up, encouraged, being presented mature in Christ. And so we could ask the question of how does Paul struggle for people he's never met? Well, certainly one of the struggles must be in prayer. 
He struggles for them in prayer. In chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul says that since the day that he heard about them in their faith, he continues to pray for them. And he goes on in chapter 4 to describe Epaphras who struggles in prayer for them. Prayer is a struggle. And Paul is in a struggle for them. He struggles over them before the Lord in prayer. And this would encourage them because it's encouraging to be prayed for. It, when we hear that somebody's praying for us, that can be an encouragement. But not just to know that they care about us, but all the more importantly because God works through prayer. When you pray, you are surrendering your ability to accomplish what you are praying for. And Paul is acknowledging that, and he is putting the burden on God's shoulders for the accomplishment of the Colossians' growth and maturity in Christ, so that when they come to this maturity, the credit will go to God and not to Paul. And that's encouraging because as you see this happening, you know it is God working in you through the prayers of his people to accomplish his good purposes. So Paul struggles for them, even though he's not been with them or seen them face to face, that they may be encouraged through his prayers. The care that he loves and shows and the struggle he has is also conveyed by his struggle for them that they would not succumb to false teaching. That's why he's writing this letter, so that no one would delude them with plausible arguments. Or down in chapter 2, verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or verse 18, let no one disqualify you. He doesn't want them to succumb to the false teaching that is so prevalent during his day and is prevalent during ours as well. And so he writes this letter to the Colossians but for them as well. He writes for their benefit, and it's a struggle to write this. You see the work of art that this letter is. Certainly this would take time and effort. It would take the being on his knees in prayer. It's a struggle, and he's in struggle for them, writing this letter so that they would be presented mature in Christ, not falling short of Christ by succumbing to plausible arguments. He loves them. And he cares about them and struggles for them. And so he prays for them. He exhorts them and teaches them through this letter. We also find out that he sends his beloved brother Tychicus to them and Epaphras to them and Onesimus to them. He sends important people in his life to them to benefit them. In a sense, Paul is laying down his life for them for their encouragement. And why does he want this? Why does he do all this? It's so that they may be encouraged in their hearts. Strengthened is the word literally, that they may be strengthened, fortified, built up. In their hearts, the seat of their desires, their intellect, their very person. He wants the Colossians in their very core to be strengthened in Christ so that they would be mature in Christ. So they would not succumb. Now, of course, encouragement is a much better 
fighter against plausible arguments than discouragement. If you are discouraged, if you are heavy of heart and burdened, if you don't have strength in your heart, it's like an open door to find or follow or find something that will encourage you. And so as Paul lets them know about the struggle that he has for them, it is so that they would be encouraged, which is a much better fighter against plausible arguments that are false. And so we too need to ask the question of how are we encouraged? Are we encouraged by the word of God? Are we encouraged by someone else struggling over you? Is there somebody struggling over you? Are you aware of that? If not, ask the Lord to either show you who is struggling for you. Ask that the Lord would give you somebody to struggle over you. I'm sure that the pastors and elders at this church love you and struggle over you in prayer and desire the best for you. Let that be an encouragement to you that they care for your souls. But it goes both ways. We too must ask the question, who are we struggling over? Who are we concerned about? Who are we seeking to encourage and strengthen? Praying for, longing for their growth and their maturity in Christ. This is a great benefit, not just for our own personal growth, but so that we would not be led astray by plausible arguments. That's the first benefit Paul mentions here, the benefit of encouragement. And the second one is the benefit of unity. The benefit of unity he goes on that they may be encouraged in their hearts being knit together in love. Encouraged hearts is not enough. He's not looking for a church of a bunch of individuals who lead their individual lives doing as they please regardless of the person around them. Rather, he's exhorting and longing and desiring and laboring over them for the sake of them being united, knit together. Pictures a garment where the strands of the garment are woven together in such a manner that you can't distinguish one thread from another. They're, they're one unified piece. If we can put it in a, a common term, it could be like Kevlar. So impenetrable that false teaching cannot get through because the church is so united together. But what's the bond? What's the glue that brings a church together? Paul says, be knit together in love. Being knit together in love. Love, of course, is the laying down of your own self-interest for the benefit of others, seeking the best of someone else, looking out for someone else's interest over your own, laying down your very life for their good. Without love, there can't be any unity because we're very opinionated, self-sustaining people. And we want to do our things our way. We have our mindset of how we ought to do something. But love lays down our interests for the benefit of another person. And when there's reciprocity in love, that's going to bring about such a tightly woven church where people actually care about one another. And this, of course, would be so striking to the world like Stephen mentioned, we live in a nation that's full of factions. But the church can be unified because we have a common Savior and a common love. 
And as we work together and live together in this kind of love, we will be unified against the plausible arguments that come. If you're encouraged in your heart, and you're living among a loving community of believers, then you have such a great arsenal against those things that come into the church or try to come against the church to argue, to lead you astray with plausible arguments and persuasive words and pleasantries and niceties. And these things look so small in comparison to the encouragement you get within your church and the love that you have there. And so when these things are present, you are so well defended. They benefit you. They benefit you. Well, the third benefit is the benefit of wisdom. And this is really where we want to spend the majority of our time just thinking through what is said here. He, he goes on to explain the desire that he has for struggle in and amongst for the Colossians. It is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's a mouthful. Paul writes long sentences with lots of words. And we can take a moment and benefit just by picking it apart for a moment. Let's take it phrase by phrase. Paul says that he desires them to reach all the riches. Whatever he's talking about, he's talking about some treasure. There's a treasure chest. And in that treasure chest is all the treasure to be had. And he wants them to have that. He wants them to have that treasure chest. All the wealth, all the treasures, all the riches is the way we understand that. All of it. He wants them to have that. And so what are the riches he's speaking of? Of course, our main understanding of riches is some sort of monetary or financial benefit. Jewels, gold, money. Could be other things, more abstract, like popularity or security. But what does he say? He says to reach all the riches of full assurance. All the riches of full assurance or full certainty, confidence. Now, we might think that having full certainty or confidence about something is a treasure. To have full confidence or certainty just at just, of just about anything would be a great gift to us because in reality, what do we have full confidence of? or full assurance of. There are things we would certainly like full assurance of or full confidence of. We might like full confidence or assurance that our roof won't leak or that our car is going to start or that we won't get sick or if we do get sick, we'll have proper health care. We might want full assurance that our relationships will stay glued together. We might want full assurance that we'll never get fired from our job or that we'll get that promotion we desire. There's so many things we want full assurance about, and there's so many things we just don't have full assurance of. What is it that we could actually have full assurance of? It's, it's a, an elusive reality in this world to have this full confidence. There's, there's almost nothing that we can have full assurance of in this life. It's so tumultuous. It's like the waves of the sea just going back and forth. We don't know what's going to come. We don't know when, what is going to happen. 
Well, Paul says what the full assurance of and what this riches is. It's full assurance of understanding. Full assurance of understanding. That's a bold statement. To say that you can have all the riches, a full assurance of understanding. There's always unknowns. How can you understand anything with full certainty or full confidence? To know something that can never be debunked or never be added to or never requires recalibration of knowledge. What could that be? And of course, we know what it is as he goes on, but I just want us to think about how elusive that certainty of understanding is in our world. Once in a while, I like to watch a YouTube video of an astrophysicist. It's just kind of fun to listen to these guys. Not that I understand 10% of what they say, but they speak with, uh, about such interesting things. And I was listening to one a number of months ago who was speaking about dark matter. And he's, he's talking about how the universe is full of dark matter. The majority of the universe is composed or has this dark matter in it. And as he's pressed on what this is, he says, well, actually, we don't even know what it is. That's why it's called dark matter. Because it's dark. We don't even know what it is. We can't tell you what it is, but we know it is. How's that for certainty of understanding? And that's the way you get to with the elites of philosophy and academics. You press them on the certainty of their understanding and they can only go so far as to how they know what they know. So what can you have certainty about? There's always unknowns, always more to be discovered, always things that can be added to or recalibrated in our understanding. So to have a certainty of knowledge, what, of what? Assurance of understanding. Well, he goes on. Unto, or and, all the knowledge of God's mystery. It says to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery. So what can be certainly known and understood? God's mystery. God's mystery. You can be certain that you understand the mystery of God. How's that for arrogance? Christopher Hitchens, who's deceased now, but the prominent atheist, disdained people claiming to know the mind of God. He would say, how can you know what God thinks? And yet here Paul is saying that you can have certainty of understanding of God's mystery. A mystery is something in the Bible that was hidden but is now revealed. And you can have certainty about it. And if there's any mystery, more important to know, it is God's mystery. There's no mystery in this world that could be more keen on knowing than God's mystery. And it's not a mystery that requires Oh, I lost it. A, a magnifying glass to go around like Sherlock Holmes trying to weave together the, the, the pieces of the puzzle to try to figure out what it is. 
God's mystery is something grander and way more obvious, something that was hidden but now revealed, and God's mystery is Christ. Unto the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Literally, Paul says, God's mystery, Christ. The mystery is Christ. It's not some abstract concept, but it's a person. Christ is the one that Paul proclaims as the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who is before all things, the one in whom all things hold together. Christ is the person, is the revelation of the God of the universe. He is the one who puts on display everything that we need to know about God. He is God's mystery, Christ. And Paul goes on to elaborate on this. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's not saying that these treasures are hidden in such a way that you can't find them. It's akin to that parable of somebody finding a treasure in a field and, and hiding it in that field because they didn't have banks. And so hiding something is, is a place of security. And it's a place where something is kept safe. Not hidden so that it can't be found, but hidden so that it's kept safe. And Paul is saying here that in Christ, God's mystery, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All, without exception. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is no place else in this world that you can look and find the kind of treasures of wisdom and knowledge that's being talked about here other than in this one place, Jesus Christ. He is the only bank that exists of true spiritual wisdom and knowledge. He is the only place that you can go and access these things. No philosophy, no teaching, no academic, no philosopher, no engineer, no scientist can give you the kind of wisdom and knowledge that you can find in Jesus Christ. He alone is where they are all located. He alone is where you can access them. Nowhere else. They're all hidden in him. And there's no place else that could contain them because God chose the one safe place in the universe where they could be contained, and that is his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else. This means that all man-made philosophy, man-made religion, have no wisdom and knowledge in them. There's nothing to be gained from them. So we don't need to go after them and pull out the nuggets of truth that are there because they're not there. They're in Christ. Look to him and him alone. We go to Christ to find all the spiritual wisdom and understanding, knowledge that we need to know the most essential facts of this life, which is namely how do we glorify God and live with him forevermore? That's the only question that ultimately matters, isn't it? And the only place that you can find that kind of wisdom and find that calling of knowledge is located in one person, Jesus Christ, only him. The uniqueness of what Christ possesses is there not because he's learned it. It's because of who he is. Jesus Christ is fully God, always existing with the Father and the Spirit. He is the Son of God. He made the world and all that's in it. There's nothing made except through Him. 
So when he came into the world and took on flesh and was born as a babe in Bethlehem, it was not so that he could come to the world and learn how to live. He was not a monk who was meditating in order to reach nirvana. Nirvana. He was not a scholastic spending his life in books and learning. He was not a physicist who was observing and experimenting. He was not an engineer who was researching and developing in order to find his information, nor was he a philosopher thinking and reasoning his way to his truth. He has not learned the wisdom and knowledge. He possesses wisdom and knowledge because he is the truth incarnate. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. It's who he is. He did not come to that truth by means of some human exploration. He came to it by who he is in his very nature. And that's why he alone possesses it, because who else could contain all the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God? As Paul writes in Romans 11.33, he says at the end of, of of explaining and elaborating on God's salvation plan, Paul just erupts with this praise, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. There's no end to the depth of his wisdom. And his judgments is so, are so pure that no one can judge them. And all of these contained in God's mystery, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not some small amount, not just a little bit. All of it is in him. You can go to the world and you can ask the world for its opinion on just about anything and it will tell you. It might tell you even if you don't ask it. You can ask it about sin, and it will say, it's not your fault. You can ask it about your existence, and it will say, it's purely material, the result of time and chance. You can ask it about death, and it will say, oh, you'll be reincarnated, or you'll just go out of existence, and it doesn't matter. You can ask it about love, and it will say, love yourself. You can ask it about justice, and it will say, everyone gets the same amount. You can ask it about vengeance, and it will say, that's okay. You can ask it about hate, and it will say, hate your enemies. You can ask it about lust, and it will say, fulfill it. You ask it about your heart, it will say, follow it. Ask about science, it will say, it's the source of truth. Ask about sex, it will say, keep it safe, but with whomever. Ask it about money, and you'll say, it satisfies, buy a lotto ticket. Ask it about Vegas, and it will say, what happens there stays there. Ask it about politics, it will say, it's, it's our only hope. So don't mess it up. Ask it about righteousness, and it will say, go green, and the planet will love you. Ask it about leadership, and it will say, you are in charge. Ask it about pride, it will say, exalt yourself. Ask it about security, it will say, get a good job and a good education, that's all you need. Ask it about humility, it will say, it's fake. Ask it about good works, and it will say, they're good enough. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God who has revealed himself in the word of God, and ask the same questions of those things. Ask him about sin, and it will say, all have sinned. Ask it about your existence, and it will say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made them male and female. 
Ask about death and it will say the wages of sin is death and after death comes judgment. Ask about love and it will say love your enemies and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ask it about justice and he will say God is judge. Ask about vengeance and it will say vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Ask about hate and it will say hate your life. Ask about lust and it will say if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. Ask about your heart, and it will say it is deceitful. Ask about sex, and it will say keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. Ask about money, and he will tell you that it's the root of all kinds of evils. Ask about Vegas, and it will say it doesn't stay there. All will be held to account. Ask about politics, and you will find that Jesus Christ is the king who will crush the kingdoms of this world. Ask about righteousness, and you'll find there is one righteous. Ask about leadership. Jesus Christ is in charge. Ask about pride. We'll say, humble yourself. Ask about security. Look for it in eternity. Ask about your vacation. It's not that you deserve it. It's that it's a gift from God. Ask about pride. God will say, humble yourself. Ask about humility. It will say, that's the way to greatness. Ask about good works. There's none good. At every step of the way, Jesus Christ and his wisdom continually contradicts and destroys the wisdom of this world. It cannot compete. The world cannot compete with the wisdom Christ has to offer. They are at odds with each other every step of the way. And only one can be true. And one appeals to our flesh and the other condemns our flesh so that we will be made like Christ and with him on resurrection day. Now all this wisdom that we find in Jesus Christ is in concentrated form at the cross. When you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where you see the preeminent display of all of God's wisdom contained in the Savior. Listen to theologian Michael Reeves as he writes this. There on the cross is displayed the glory, the wisdom, the righteousness, the love, the justice, and the power of God. And none of it looks anything like what you'd expect. Would you ever have thought of a man dying on a cross was the definition of love? Yet this is how we know what love is. Would you ever have looked at the miscarriage of justice that was his trial and imagined that there, above all, is displayed the perfect justice of God? Yet God did it to demonstrate his justice. Would you ever have dreamed that the Almighty would make the definitive display of his power there, nailed to a cross between two common criminals? There seems to be nothing powerful about that man in the throes of death, yet hanging there, he is crushing the head of the serpent, tying up the strong man, driving out the prince of this world, destroying death, putting the spiritual powers to open shame and triumphing over them. The cross is the complete opposite of what we would expect things to be. At the cross we find that death is the means of life. It is the wisdom of God 
what looks like the most foolish thing to the world, that our Savior is hung like a piece of meat on the tree. The world doesn't get that. But when the Spirit reveals to you that there on the cross is the only means of your salvation, because on that cross the perfect God-man hung, bearing the weight of your sin so that you can be forgiven of your sin and live with God forever and eternity, when the Spirit reveals that to you, you see that all the wisdom of this world cannot concoct something as amazing and beautiful as that event on the day that Jesus Christ hung on the cross at Calvary. And then all the philosophies of this world look like putrid, mold-encrusted fish food. Because now you see Jesus Christ, your Savior, God incarnate, hanging on the cross as the preeminent display of love for sinners like you and me. And once you get that, then you see, oh, God's wisdom is there in Christ and not in this world. And you follow Christ and you have full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Not that you understand everything in this world, but you understand the main thing, that God revealed himself in Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. Let's pray. Father, what you've done at the cross is a display of wisdom that we cannot have ever come up with on our own. It's so fascinating and so pure and so true and, and solves our deepest problem of sin. It has to be true. And you've shown us by your spirit. And I thank you, Lord. And I pray that we would be sold to the reality of the wisdom that you've put in your son. We wouldn't go after this world, Father. Keep us safe. I pray that we would worship you as you've called us to, through the Lord Jesus Christ and by your Spirit. We find all of our satisfaction there, Lord. And that as a church, we would be people who love one another and encourage each other towards this truth of Jesus Christ so that we'd all be presented mature in Christ. Oh, how we look forward to that day when Christ will come, collect his own so we can be with him forever, worship him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.